As you can see, we've had our eye on you for some time now, Mr. Anderson. It seems that you've been living two lives. In one life, you're Thomas A. Anderson, program writer for a respectable software company. You have a social security number, you pay your taxes, and you help your landlady carry out her garbage. The other life is lived in computers, where you go by the hacker alias Neo and are guilty of virtually every computer crime we have a law for. Okay, Hello and welcome, welcome and hello. This is Wait You Haven't Seen, and it's a show where we talk about movies, and specifically a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host, Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis. This is episode number 86. Our movie this week was 1999's The Matrix, and joining me to talk about it because somehow he had never seen it, Tanner Goodman. Tanner, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? And yes, I am ashamed to say I have never seen the movie The Matrix. Well, you have now, so we fixed that little yeah. problem. Um, that, that has been remedied. So the question I have to ask is, is how did you make it 21 years without seeing this movie? So I was born in 92. So when it came out, I was seven. Okay. And then, That's fair. I can, I can understand not seeing it when it came out. <laughs> right. And then I guess, uh, I don't know. I just never got around to it. There was just always movies coming out. And someone in the chat room points out not seeing the princess bride well i've never seen that either that's okay <laughs> so. he hadn't seen the princess bride either that's why he brings that up <laughs> oh, okay he's already but, been uh, on yeah. to talk about that um oh there you go yeah yeah i uh i catch flack all the time for not seeing classic movies like from people at work people will be talking to me about i don't know princess bride or the matrix and they start bringing up quotes and then i just sit there with like a deer in the headlights <laughs> stare at them <laughs> like just a, you've never seen this movie the glassy look yeah that's exactly well, it. And the interesting thing for me is like Princess Bride or The Matrix or some of these movies like this, they become more than just a movie. Like The Matrix really became a pop cultural phenomena in a way. It did. And so that's where when, when it's something like that, it's more surprising to me than like, oh, you never saw, you know, The Hackers, let's say, you know, because it's kind mm-hmm. of a cult movie or something like that. But The Matrix was such a huge thing when it came out and for so many years afterwards that it's almost like it amazes me that you didn't even just accidentally see it. Like you didn't catch it when it was playing on on cable back back when or you had some friends right. that were just like, you just look, you're going to sit down, you're going to watch this type of thing. So, right. you know, and but, I will say like I've seen. So I went in and I actually wrote notes about like what I knew prior to watching this movie. Okay. So I knew that there was like a red and a blue pill and that mm-hmm. the red pill like pulled them out of the matrix. And I knew that humans were somehow batteries. And that, that's kind of like the only gist of things that I understood. And then Mr. Anderson, um, and there's a, a funny story. So when I was in, I think middle school, I guess right around when this movie came out, we had a teacher named Mr. Anderson oh, nice. and like all the kids, <laughs> Would just you know with that with that voice, Mister Anderson, you yeah. know. Um, but yeah, so I understood like a lot of the references. I just never had, I could never like point to the movie. I guess you could say. Okay, so um, I guess before because I kind of want to talk about the cast because the cast of this movie is pretty impressive. But before we get mm-hmm. to that, 
are you much of a either cyberpunk or anime fan? So anime, it depends. I like a lot of the, uh, I don't know, more fantasy type stuff. Okay. Um, like in the vein of World of Warcraft or something like that. Uh, and cyberpunk, I'm not, I haven't dabbled too much into it. So I guess you could say not really. Okay. I'm not opposed to it. So if you liked this movie, an anime that I recommend is Ghost in the Shell because it was a, okay. that was highly influential for this film. Um, mm-hmm. and it came out a few years before it. There's, there's both a movie, um, there's a, a series called standalone complex. There is a live action movie, which you don't really have to watch necessarily. Um, <laughs> but it was big influence on this and cyberpunk in general was a big influence on this. So I'm just always curious about stuff like that because, right. you know, it, when, when it's something like this where those are huge influences of it and maybe you're just it's not in your wheelhouse then it's another reason why it could have passed by be something mm-hmm. that you just don't you know right go to yeah and battle angel alita um is another one so yeah we did see i did see that one battle angel was a really good movie um my husband's really into anime so he always okay. has ones and he's like you need to watch this and we'll watch it and battle angel was was really good um i uh, talking about influence like i'm surprised the thing that I kind of took away was how many films I think the Matrix also influenced. Yes, very like much. Going so. in like Inception, like mm-hmm. I watched. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. <laughs> and like after watching the Matrix, I'm like, whoa! They pulled a lot like conceptually out of out of the Matrix. Um, mm-hmm. I thought that was pretty cool too. Yeah, there was a lot of conceptual influence that it had, as well as visual uh, stylistic mm-hmm. influence. Um, it, in fact, from like 1999 probably through to like 04, 05, you can find so many kind of knockoff Matrix style movies. There's Equilibrium and and movies that had the same look and feel with the long coats and the um, the wire foo and all of that. This movie was not uh, nowhere near the first movie to use like wire work, but it was a big Hollywood film that did. And it really made that style of filmmaking more prevalent in modern action movies. Cause prior to that, it was mostly Hong Kong cinema that used that. And the right. Wachowskis really wanted to bring that over. And we'd had John Woo as a director come over to America, but his stuff just didn't translate the same way for some reason, his American stuff. while a lot of fun wasn't quite as good as his stuff in Hong Kong, but for some reason this mm-hmm. worked and then it kind of gave way to a lot of that, getting brought into to modern action movies. So yeah, it's highly influential. It was. And uh, I will say too, like the movie really holds up. Like I was expecting 99, like CGI would be kind of crap. And you know, a lot of the special effects wouldn't be so good or like super gimmicky, but like watching it a lot of it, I don't know if it's been reworked, but <laughs> a lot of it like still holds up today. Like the, the agents like glitching into other people, uh, stuff like that, just CG wise it, you know, it looked visually impressive. Yeah, and I think part of that is because they did a lot of CG work in this and a lot of practical work. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that what they did for CG work in this was more subtle um, because, quite honestly, there's two sequels to this movie, Matrix Reloaded and Revolutions, and the mm-hmm. the CG in those doesn't hold up nearly as well, in my opinion. Um, and I think because they got more ambitious, which is fine, but even at the time those came out, I felt like they looked dated then. But this, for some reason, you're right. It's 21 years old, and it still looks great. There's only a few shots I even look at from a hypercritical aspect where I'm like, that's not a great composite. You know, there's one shot of Trinity flying through the air where I'm like, okay, that could look better. 
you know, right. but, but it's like, that's hyper. I mean, it's super nitpicky of me. Like the overall look of the movie is great. And I think that's because it was a smaller film too, like in terms of scope. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't trying to do too much. And a lot of, a lot of the work was done on stages or in interior shots. So there's not a lot of outside stuff they had to deal with. Um, right. They also did I do remember. Some, I'll go ahead. No, I, I was going to say, I remember back in the day too, like playing a matrix uh, video game, I think for like the Xbox, like I rented it from oh, yeah. blockbuster when that was all thing. And I played that and it was fun to see, like, I remember certain scenes from that video game and like, uh, that really stuck in my mind. So the the scene where they're like in the lobby of uh, wherever the agents were holding Lawrence mm-hmm. Fishburne, um, but and like just shooting and the sheer amount of concrete just like flying in the air as they like blow up these pillars. Like I vividly remember that. Yeah. Um, just from the game. And really cool thing about that scene is that at the end there where they're standing and the, they just do the wide shot of the lobby and that part of the pillar kind of crumbles and falls off of it. Right. That wasn't planned. That just oh, really? happened. Just that just happened while they were shooting that one take, and they're like, "You know what? Leave that in. That looks good. That fits." So I love you know, that. I, I, I pulled that away. I'm like, "Oh, that's a cool like comedic moment." Mm-hmm. You know that you know you know like after all this chaos, and then specifically with that scene too, like like I said, the amount of concrete just flying through the air, like blinding the screen for like five whole minutes, and then. Yeah. Uh, the one thing that I kind of asked a question about, like afterwards, there's just like a few small piles of concrete on the ground. I'm like, that yeah. that place would just like completely be littered. Oh yeah, but you know that 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 was a cool scene and it is very iconic. And like I said, that that stuck out in my mind uh, specifically from the video game because I remember you could like shoot the tiles and they would crumble in that like mm-hmm. uh, same sort of way. It was really cool. Well, what's interesting is so we've talked a little bit about anime and kind of anime influences to this, mm-hmm. and I remember walking out of the theater seeing this because. I was born a few years before you, so I did go see this in the theater. <laughs> um, but I remember walking out of the theater thinking, wow, they made a live-action anime. Mm-hmm. It was exactly what I thought. In 1999, anime was popular in the U.S., but nowhere near what it is now, and it was a lot harder to get. It was a lot harder to see. It was much more of like a subculture at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, we were just starting to see it show up on like Cartoon Network's Toonami and things like that. But I, I just remember walking out thinking, wow, they pulled it off. They made a live action anime film. And right. to the to date, I haven't seen a live action film based on an anime that looks more like an anime than this does, in my opinion. And right. there's been a few that have tried. Right. Yeah, I don't think so either. And, you know, the, I didn't really because I'm not super into anime culture like my husband is. But um, I could definitely see like comparisons uh, between the two like it's very I think anime inspired almost well one of the trivia bits I read was that the Wachowskis actually went to Joel Silver who's the producer of this and with a copy of Ghost in the Shell and basically told him we want to make this but in live action mm-hmm. and you can see it uh, mm-hmm. now they did shop the script around for a while because a lot of studios didn't get it um, and it took them a while to secure funding because it was it was thought to be either too incomprehensible or too. Uh, I think Lawrence Fishburne said it was he didn't think it could get made because it was too smart. Mm-hmm. In some ways, I get that. It, there is there's not a lot of subtlety in the in the subtext of this. I don't think, no. um, especially no. when you watch it more than once. I mean, you know, me, Neo is basically uh, a messiah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they come right out and call him Jesus Christ right in the beginning of the movie. Right. 
um, albeit in a joking manner, but it's, it's not the most subtle film, but honestly, I don't mind that. I, it, it needs that. Like it works for the world they were creating. So I like I that. So too. And you bring up like the whole complexity of it. And I was reading too, because so my background's in biochemistry. So immediately like mm. my mind went to, I don't think a human can produce that much energy to like power all of these robots. So I like, after watching it, I dug into it a bit. And I guess like originally uh, the plan was to make them um, be like computing power for these AI. Cause I, AI okay. have to like uh, rely on something in order to, you know, do what they do. Mm -hmm. And uh, after reading that, a lot of people were like, people aren't going to understand like <laughs> how are you going to convey what a CPU and AI does? Right. Uh, so they change it to just like a battery because everyone could, could understand what that is. Yeah. Cause I think at one point they mentioned like however many BTUs of body heat, the body puts out. Right. And my thought is like, okay, maybe over the course of a lifetime, they put out that much body heat, right. but I don't think it's like a continuous thing. So yeah. But again, you know, you gotta, you, you gotta take some liberties with kind of reality to mm -hmm. make a film. Um, I was having a discussion earlier today about the movie hackers and the fact that yes, the, the nuts and bolts of hackers is not realistic to what the life is like, but that wasn't what they were going for. They're trying to right. make a entertaining film and they made the subculture and the same thing here. You take a little Liberty here and there, but it works because you make a compelling story. And the story is really what drives this. It's the whole rising up against the oppressors type thing. So, yeah. And, and, you know, I know you and I were chatting a little bit off, <clears throat> off of this, but seeing the analogies like between today's culture and back in 99, this mm -hmm. movie still really does hold up. And, you know, like one quote that I think is, is fairly timeless. I think um, in my point of view uh, was when uh, Agent Smith is talking about how, you know, humans are a virus. You know, that was yeah kind of one of the coolest quotes in the whole movie for me. And um, yeah, humans are a disease, cancer of the planet, you are the plague, and we are the cure. Like, I thought that was really cool. Um, yeah. And it's true. <laughs> it's it's it absolutely is. true. It's very true. And I remember coming out of the movie thinking exactly that. I'm like, wow, they kind of nailed that one. Um, and it's only gotten worse. It, it has <laughs> only gotten worse. <laughs> There's also been a lot of stuff that's come out recently. So the Wachowskis, who wrote and directed this, um, mm -hmm. they had written this script or the first iteration of it in the early 90s. And it wasn't until 99, 98 when they could finally get it made. And in fact, Joel Silver even told them, because they came to him with the script, they had written um, a movie with Antonio Banderas called Assassins, and that was being mm -hmm. made. And they came to Silver with their, their script for The Matrix and were like, we want to make this, but we want to direct it. And he, he looked at him and said, you know what? Go direct something else first and prove you can be a director before you take this project on. Right. So they made a movie called Bound. And it was a big hit uh, for the size of movie that it was. So they were able to make this. Now, since this movie came out, the and in this they were credited as the Wachowski brothers. Since this movie's right. come out, they've both come out transgender. Mm -hmm. and there are a lot of allusions to transgender stuff in the matrix as well. Um, and it's become more, uh, I guess either kind of bubbled up to the surface a little bit more in recent years and been talked about more. And one of their, um, when in an interview they were talking about that and they're like, that's good. I mean, it's a good thing because it shows that art isn't static and that it's constantly changing and being reinterpreted. 
Right. So little things like the splinter in your mind line, which I always really liked as a as a line, like this thing that's in your head that you can't you, you can't reconcile is something to do with that. And another thing, and this was uh, something that I read recently, I, I don't know how I didn't know this before, but the character of Switch mm-hmm. in the movie originally in the script was androgynous and was going to be played by a male character in the real world and a female character inside the matrix. Oh, really? That's yeah. cool. Which I kind of wish they had done because right. that's one thing watching it recently that I thought about is they're all supposed to be digital projections or mental projections of what they think they look like when they're in the matrix, but they all mm-hmm. look exactly like they do in the real world. Right. And like, anybody who's played any online games or done any sort of online stuff knows that not everybody does that. Some people will, mm-hmm. but some people create totally different characters or have totally different personas that they portray online. So I, I thought that could have been something they could have explored more. Yeah, that would have been really cool. Um, you know, <clears throat> being a heavy MMO player and RPG mm-hmm. player, always, you know, creating this uh person that i think i am you know like internally um you know being a strong individual or whatever but yeah that would have been really neat uh if they kind of dove into that a little bit more yeah Um, and it would have made the the name of switch make more sense too it would have yeah yeah and i guess yeah even the the woman that played switch initially auditioned only to play the part of switch in the matrix oh and then warner i think it was warner brothers decided or told them maybe they should change that, or somewhere along the line, the studio said, "You know what? Let's change this." Uh, you know, nowadays I think you make this today, you might be able to get that done a I little think bit it, easier. Yeah, I think it, I think being made today, and you, you know, the '90s, even you know, LGBT rights and stuff like that were in a completely different place than they are now. Mm-hmm. Um, Very much, so. and I think reception of something like that uh, from a certain subset of individuals may have, I don't know, <laughs> been yeah. outwardly vocal. But But it would have been really cool, and I kind of wish that they had done it. But at the same time, uh, you know, what they did, what they were able to get across, I think really works thematically. So while Mm -hmm. they couldn't have that small bit or, you know, certain things that had to get changed throughout filmmaking, as, as happens when you're making a movie, I think they still were able to get a lot of the themes across. And what I like about it is that it's so open to interpretation. There's different ways that I can take it versus you can or someone else will interpret the material. So I like that because it gives a lot to a lot of different people. It does. And there were questions too, as I, and I don't know if these are answered in the, the, the sequels to this movie. And I guess there's a fourth one coming out next year. Also there is, I'm I'm interested to see where that goes because I am, I am of the mind that the sequels exist and aren't great. So I'd like to see where they go. It's kind of what I was told. I went to work yesterday and I told the one person who kept pushing me to watch the matrix. I'm like, Hey man, I finally watched the matrix and he like <laughs> freaked out and he's like, just don't watch the other two. Like <laughs> just leave it at, at the one. Um, I think part of it, and w- we can, let's touch on that in a little bit. Cause I do want to address your questions about it too. And then mm-hmm. we can kind of talk somewhat about the, the sequels without going too much, but I do want to talk about the casting because right, yeah, yeah. you got Keanu Reeves as Neo, AKA <laughs> Thomas Anderson. So this sort of revived, I mean, not even sort of, this revived his career. He had, he had done Bill and Ted, he had done some movies, but he was kind of in a, in a downturn in terms of like box office draw. He just wasn't getting, he had made, you know, Johnny Mnemonic, 
which mm-hmm. ironically is a very cyberpunk movie that didn't do very well. And here he is doing something else cyberpunk a few years later, which worked. Um, <laughs> but he he really embodies the character of Neo well because Neo needs to be a uh, almost an audience surrogate. He needs to be kind of a blank slate. And Reeves, especially at this point, really did such a good job of being that. Right, so you can you can identify with him, and so many different types of people can identify with him because he is sort of this blank slate of a of a character. And I think too, from that, like uh, from the audience point of view, like he knows as much as we do, and he's mm-hmm. learning along with us, like what the Matrix is and what you can do in it. And you know, just seeing him evolve throughout the movie. Um, was really awesome and i think he he knocked it out of the park with the role and i was also surprised to see how young he was <laughs> again looks just completely different than he does today but again that was 21 years ago yeah um interestingly the first three quarters of the movie i think is what i read he has or maybe it was the first 45 minutes but he has 80 lines of dialogue and half of them are questions Huh. which I thought was kind of interesting. But you're right, He's he's got to figure it out as he goes along, and so we get to go along on that ride with him, which is pretty cool. Right, and and along with the questions, like I had a notebook open writing down questions as I was going through, and then, you know, three minutes later, he would ask it, and it would get answered. So I would like, <laughs> it off. I'm like, well, this is good on the filmmakers and the writers for, you know, the audience are going to have these questions, and you're, and you're addressing all of them, which I thought was really good. Yeah, and that was that was another thing I heard that they they added or Warner Brothers asked them to put in some more expository dialogue to kind of help with a lot of the questions that people were going to ask. Um, but yeah, I it, now he also trained super hard uh, for the physical aspects of this. Um, all of the principal actors did four months of training uh, in order to learn the martial arts and the wire work to be able to do it. Unfortunately, he was only able to do about half of that because of a back injury. So if you notice, he doesn't do a lot of kicking uh, for the martial arts, Um, not Mm -hmm. not as much as some other people. And that was because he couldn't for a while. He couldn't learn that stuff early on. So interesting. But what it did was it worked into his character because he was just more of an upper body fighter. So it worked. Um, Now, Lawrence Fishburne plays Morpheus. Mm -hmm. And this was another one of those where Lawrence Fishburne's had a great career and he certainly wasn't a downturn, but this really was a was a very uh recognizable role for him moving forward like a lot of people identify Lawrence Fishburne with Morpheus in these movies and he's just so cool in this movie he was cool and he was like uh the super like enigmatic individual like super mysterious and that's one of the individuals like I have questions about mm-hmm. like later on but uh no he was super cool and I think uh I recognized him I believe he played uh, in CSI, was it Las Vegas? He was in. Like that's, uh, that yeah. was my. He was one of the doctors in in CSI, so he was he was like the the person that I knew, I guess, immediately going into this. Like that's how I identified him. But oh, that's that's anyway. funny too. That that there kind of shows a little age difference for us because you're identifying <laughs> him from CSI that he did several years after this, and I'm right. thinking I can go all the way back to Lawrence Fishburne in Pee Wee's Playhouse when he was right. Cowboy Curtis, <laughs> you know, in the late '80s with a, you know, like sequined cowboy shirts and a jerry curl. So, um, but Lawrence Fishburne is one of those that he's got a really cool presence. Um, and I just, I think he fit this well. He described playing the character was being like Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Vader at the same time. 
I think that's a really good uh, a really good comparison. You know, he's he's this mentor, but also the bad guy, uh, depending on how you look at him. Mm-hmm. Um, I like his cadence throughout the whole thing. He just has like this calm, calm, collected uh, aura about him, I guess you could say. Yeah, um, in everything too, not just in his speaking, but even like the whole martial arts training scene. He's very slow, deliberate, fluid movements mm-hmm. to Neo's kind of, I'm just learning this stuff and I'm super excited for all of it. So it's fr- frenetic. Right. Um, and that fits with Morpheus and who, who Morpheus was at the time, which it is does. pretty cool. And he's and, and like a super tough guy too. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at the, the part where they're trying to break into his brain and get the codes to Zion or whatever. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, he's just not cracking at all. So he's like this super tough guy. Um, yep. I could probably say uh morpheus is one of my favorite characters in the in the film yeah plus he had the greatest sunglasses ever he did and i want to know how he perched them on his face like (laughs) anything behind his ears well the sunglasses were a big part of this movie and they were actually so it was a small company that made them for the movie and they were all custom made so they were all custom made for the characters they beat out like Ray-Ban and, and a bunch of other. Arnett, I think, was another company that really tried to get in there. Um, I'm curious to know how to. I think if I remember right, they clipped somehow onto the bridge of his nose. So I think okay. the nose pads kind of clipped in place. But yeah, those I remember those coming out and it was just like, what is that? How how do those even work? So those, <laughs> those were great. And they were super iconic because I remember in like the early 2000s, like... I think the matrix played a big part in like the style of sunglasses that people wore just big because time. every character had like their own distinct look that they wore. And I mean, even mm-hmm. uh, agent Smith in one at one point, um, I think it's his glasses knocked off and he's very deliberate in putting his sunglasses back on. They're like all cracked or whatever, you yep. know? Um, so that was kind of interesting. Yeah. And then our third kind of primary character is um, Carrie Ann Moss playing Trinity. And, mm-hmm. This was this was definitely the movie that put her on the map. She's even said herself, like, she had no career before this movie. And since then, I've seen her in quite a few things. She was in um, Marvel's Jessica Jones as uh, as a side character, uh, a lawyer. That And she was great in that. So if you, if you haven't okay. seen that series, and she pops up in a couple of the other Marvel Netflix series, you know, in a cameo here and there. But... Um, she had done Memento a couple years after this. This was really what put her on the map. She was another one that did a lot of extensive training to be in this. She didn't think she was going to have to at first, but they they had her go through all the training. Obviously, it's a physical role. Right. Um, and she's another one that's pretty good in this because, you know, in some ways, she's the most important character in this movie. I, would, you, I would say so. Um, you know. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, if you look at her, her relationship with Neo is kind of the catalyst that makes him realize he is the one. It's sort of like without that, I don't know. Now, maybe he does come back anyway, but she kind of becomes the most important character. Yeah. And, you know, I think helping him realize this prophecy that the Oracle, you know, prophesized, um, I think she, you know, when he's in there in the matrix and they can't get him out and she tells him, you know, I love you. I think that's kind of like the transition point where he, he does realize he is this, you know, he is the one. Yeah. Yeah. And she's great. Uh, I, I really enjoyed her in this. Um, so, you know, uh, also, okay. Hugo weaving, 
as Agent Smith. Now, Hugo mm-hmm. Weaving's another one who's gone on to have quite a career, but this was another one of those where this is what I first remember him in. A couple years later, he does Elrond in uh, The Lord of the Rings. He had yep. done he had done some stuff prior to this, but most of it, from what I saw, was Australian films. Um, mm-hmm. He did one called Priscilla, Queen of the Desert uh, prior to this and all that. He's great as Agent Smith. He is such a good villain in this, so much so that even though when I first saw The Lord of the Rings, I knew Elrond to be a good guy, I still was like, I don't think I fully trust Elrond right now because <laughs> it's Agent Smith. Right. right. Um, he, pl- he plays such a good, like even before you know what the agents are, you know, just his delivery of everything. Mm-hmm. You're like, something's off and it's very robotic in the way he talks. And, you know, there's like zero emotion in anything that he says. I'm like, something's off about this guy, you know, just from, from the very get go. But yeah, yeah, it was incredible. And I guess he based that voice that he was doing off of like 1950s newscasters. It sounded to me like um, he based it at least partially off of Carl Sagan of all people. Mm-hmm. Like I really got that feeling uh, of his voice even back in 99 when I first saw it. But it's just a, it's a fun character. And he has, you know, he has some great moments. I mean, he has that whole moment of looking at because he's an agent. He's a program but he's got ambitions. He doesn't want to be in the matrix anymore. He hates it there. And so that gives him a different layer and makes him honestly more frightening as a program to have those emotional responses. And I think too, that ties back to the whole like AI thing, right? Cause that's, mm-hmm. what's like scary about AI. And even now, you know, or maybe 10 years down the road when we start talking about, uh, AI and what rights they might have, because, you know, they may start developing these emotions, yeah. um, that these, sentinels i think they are like programmed uh the agents into the matrix to be kind of like these peacekeepers and they programmed unintentionally maybe the the emotional aspects or use some of their ai code in there um and now he is evolving past you know what the sentinels intended him going into the matrix to like perform his duty which i think is really cool yeah and i like the fact that they had two other agents So you got to see what the agents originally were supposed to be like. And now you're seeing Smith is slightly different, even to the point where they're Mm -hmm. like, they come back into the room and he's got his earpiece out and his sunglasses off. And the one looks at him and says, what were you doing? Like he can't, he just doesn't understand what's going on. So yeah, agent and agent Smith is just a great villain. Now it gets a little dicey with the sequels as to where they go with Smith. He's still a pretty good villain, but it it gets kind of crazy. So but overall, I just I really liked uh, the way, and he's menacing too. Like he's just dripping with menace the whole time. Mm-hmm. Even in the like the interview scene, like towards the very beginning, where he like sits down with him. Oh uh, yeah, um, you know, just you get this. I mean, before you even know what's going on uh, throughout the whole thing, it, it is very menacing. Um, which kind of brings up like a point that I I saw, uh, like the the part where he's sitting in his cubicle and Morpheus calls him and says, you know, you have a choice, like go down the scaffolding or you're going out with them. Mm -hmm. And then that, that kind of stuck out to me, but this whole movie is filled with like these bi binary choices. Mm -hmm. Like you can either do this or this, and you're going to (laughs) choose like, or you can do this and this. And just a few that I wrote down, like the blue pill or red pill, uh, Morpheus is going to die or you're going to die uh, from the Oracle. Um, you can go down the scaffolding or be arrested or even when he's in the car uh, being taken to Morpheus, like you can stay in the car, you can get out. Like it's just yeah. like filled with all these binary decisions, uh, mm-hmm. which I thought like played really well into like this whole like computer programmed world. Yeah, absolutely. 
Uh, Joey pa- Joey Pants, Joe Pantoliano plays Cypher, and he's sort of the secondary antagonist, right? He's the the mole. Mm-hmm. Um, question for you: How at what point did before it was revealed that he was the informant? Did you suspect that he was the informant? I'm curious. Or did you? Not until not until he was revealed. Yeah, like okay. I think he played a really good role, and uh, and maybe watching it back again, knowing what happens, I'll pick up on it way sooner. But uh, yeah, I didn't. I had no idea um, up until like he was eating the steak. <laughs> yeah, I'm always curious about that because, I, and maybe it is just rewatching it and knowing that he is like I feel like it's given away earlier. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but and plus he had like the most. Um, evil-looking facial hair of anybody. He did, he had, yeah. He was like a super rough-looking individual. <laughs> but I, I love him as an actor. Uh, I have since I first saw him in uh, Running Scared when I was a kid, which is a movie I've talked at ad nauseum about. Um, but he just always pops up in something, and he's great. Whether it's being the the uh, police captain in Bad Boys, or you know this character, or Cosmo Renfro in The Fugitive and its sequel, like he's just a great character actor, and he's always fun to have. And he gets he he has this ease with which he can deliver a line like it's good for two things: degreasing engines and killing brain cells. That just makes <laughs> you chuckle. Like he just right. there's something about Joe Pataliano that works. So. He's Cypher. He was a, a cool character and really the only other crew member aside from Tank that you get to learn anything about, which is one issue I have with the movie. Um, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. But um, but overall, you know, I, I like I like Cypher and it's a good reveal, too, because you knew there mm-hmm. was somebody. Somebody was giving them information. So Right. Uh, and then Tank was the other one I wanted to mention. Marcus Chong plays Tank. He's one of the two characters that's like a, a natural, they call him a natural human. Doesn't have any mm-hmm. of the plugs or anything. He was a fun character, and unfortunately he doesn't show up in the sequels because he didn't um, apparently get along very well or had some negotiation issues uh, for how much he wanted to get paid. Oh, to okay. the point where he sued uh, the filmmakers afterwards for breach of contract because of getting written out of the the sequels oh no yeah yeah i'm looking at uh his imdb he hasn't done much since then not really (laughs) maybe a handful of handful of films tv shows it's too bad because he he was a guy he had a lot of charisma and he had a a cool screen presence and he's got a decent role in this too so right yeah yeah no, um, um, and I thought too, like bringing up the whole natural human thing, like because mm-hmm. before they mentioned it, I noticed I'm like, you don't have plugs in your arms, like what's going on, or in the <laughs> back of your head. And then they mentioned the Zion thing. I'm like, oh, Zion's cool. Are they going to go there during this movie? But no, they don't. Not like, this movie. And and I'm assuming in the in the sequels they like delve more into that because now I'm super interested in you know what's going on with these humans, like the battle versus humans and AI and that kind of thing. Um, which I think will pull me to watch the sequels uh, just because I want to like know more about this world. Cause it is so interesting. Yeah. I think it's worth seeing the sequels, even though they, they just don't compare to this movie, but some of that too is expectations because mm-hmm. this movie was such a cultural phenomenon at the time. I mean the budget to make this because they shot almost all of it in Australia uh, they were able to get a budget of around $63 million to make this movie. Which blows my mind. <laughs> like, 
the, the CG and, and just the quality of the movie and every, and I mean, I mean, maybe back then, but like Keanu Reeves and Lawrence Fishburne, you know, having these as like your headlining actors, mm-hmm. like a bunch of 63 million just blows my mind for the yeah. quality. Now, that again, that was, that was part of it was being able to shoot in Australia because I think the estimate for it, if it had been an American production was about three times that. So, oh, wow. um, but it made 171 million in the U.S. and 460 something million worldwide. So it was a huge success. And again, like I mentioned at the kind of the top of the show, it really was a pop cultural thing, and it really got into kind of the zeitgeist. And there was, you know, what is the Matrix and and glitch in the Matrix, and it, it became just ingrained in our society, almost in our culture. That it's I a, don't think the sequels were ever going to live up to that hype. And you know, I. Re- I remember, and now I like put two and two together. Cause again, like you have a deja vu or whatever moment and you know, someone says, Oh, I've had deja vu. And then someone will say, Oh, it's a glitch in the matrix. And I'm yep. like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> like, at yeah. all. I'm like, Oh, okay, sure. And then, you know, watching this, uh, you know, in the cat, he's like, Oh, it's deja vu. And everyone just freaks out because mm-hmm. you know, the matrix, something changed and it's like reloading this program. Yeah. And Diddy in the chat brings up everybody I knew had that screensaver. Yeah, I did too. The the code falling oh, code, the code of like the screensaver, which was cool because that apparently was a mixture of Arabic numerals and lettering and um, Japanese symbols, but they would be reversed and all sorts of stuff like that to make that code, which was pretty cool. Yeah. And and we definitely are going to talk about the look of this movie here very soon. Um, my one nitpick was that you had some really interesting concepts of characters like switch, APOC, mouse that really are, are not just not used. Like there was almost like mm-hmm. either, either give them more. There was so like, there was so much of the beginning of the movie. That's just Trinity, um, Morpheus and Neo. And then the end of the movie is Neo and Smith and some Trinity. And you had, three or four characters that just feel like they almost didn't need to be there. Like Dozer was a cool character, but at the same time, he's barely in the movie. Right. You know, you could have made him and tank into kind of one person instead of them being brothers, you know, switch APOC and mouse are largely not used. Unfortunately, like the the only thing that like mouse brought out, like I wish they dove more into that because you know, they're sitting around the table eating the goop or whatever. And he brings up chicken and everything tasting like chicken. Yeah, exactly. And you know, that's like the one line that got me to think. And then that was it. Like he was gone the rest of the movie. Yeah. And I kind of get it. I mean, the movie's already two hours and 15 minutes long. And if it goes much longer than that, you're going to lose people. But Mm-hmm. I just feel like those characters either either cut them entirely or somehow work it in so that they're they're in more, they do more because Apoc looks cool, but I couldn't tell right. you anything else about the guy, like the character right. at all. He's just there and he points a gun at some people. He drives a car. So, Even like Dozer, like, yeah, I know it's uh Tank's brother. That's that's really all Yeah. <laughs> that's really all I know about yep. you. He's Tank's brother and apparently he pilots the ship. That's it. That's all yep. you know about it. That's that's it. And then he gets taken out by Cypher. Um, and, you know, like a movie that, again, comparing it to Inception and, you know, having all of these ancillary characters, like just doing something like that where each of them have a specialty when they go into the Matrix. Yes. You know, like you're this person and you're you are the demolitions guy and you do this, you know, like that would yeah. have been interesting to see. But mm-hmm. they were mostly just like bullet shields. 
Yeah. And it, you know, yes, having them all have a specialty is tropey, but that tropes exist for a reason and it would have right. worked because mm-hmm. at this point, all you know about switch is that switch is the only one in the crew that wears white. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, APOC has long hair. Like, there you go. That's, that's their character personalities. So. I, I noticed the white thing. Is that, was that brought up anywhere like symbolically as to why? No, like, I, I don't remember it ever it was really just being brought up. Thing. I think it was just that one character to stand out. Um, and then not use them at all. Right. <laughs> yep, exactly. really anything. <laughs> yeah. I almost, I almost wonder if there's, or if there was plans to make like a three hour cut of this. That, that would have been awesome. more of that because I would watch it. Mm-hmm. I enjoy it that much. Um, now the look of the movie overall. So we're kind of touched on it so far, but the, the look is very iconic and very interesting. It's, um, like I said, there's a, there was a ton of knockoff versions of like the long black trench coats and, and that look. Um, but the visuals of everything inside the matrix was very drab, very bombed out, very almost ghetto looking in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. But if you notice too, everything inside the matrix is tinged green and it plays towards a green color palette. And they were kind of trying to play off the, the old green monochrome monitors. Mm-hmm. Um, now, one thing that I, I noticed, there was a movie that came out a year before this called Dark City. And pardon me, Dark City plays with a lot of the same themes of humans kind of held in this constructed reality for them. It's a very different movie. But visually, it looks the same. It's got a very similar color palette. It's got a very similar kind of that drab, monochrome look to it. In fact, they even repurposed some of the sets from Dark City for The Matrix. Some of those rooftops were straight out of Dark City. And okay. there was there was controversy for a little while that, oh, The Matrix ripped off Dark City. Well, Matrix was written before it, even though Dark City came out a year earlier. Um, but I just I think it's an interesting look. It gives it... There was another movie in the same era called The 13th Floor um, mm-hmm. that also had that sort of similar look to it. So that late 90s, for whatever reason, it was just a, a really popular kind of almost uh, noir thing. Because if you notice, there's a lot. I mean, it's a very drab color palette. And I think very dystopian look. Yes. You know, <clears throat> and a lot of that was on purpose. They wanted the the world of the Matrix to look dystopian. And then. Right. Uh, I know they, they also tried to t- color shift a lot of blues into the real world, which is ironic that blue is like the least common natural color. And yet right. they wanted the real world to be blue. Um, and then I also read that the the stuff in the training dojo was tinged yellow. So it sort of didn't fit either one, which I thought was. Yeah, I neat. noticed uh, even when in like the white room and when they're sitting, you know, in these red leather chairs of anything that was like in this training simulation almost was tinged yellow. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. So. Color choices is, is very interesting. Um, I didn't notice the green one until you brought it up and like looking at images now I'm like, Oh yeah, like <laughs> there is a lot of green in this. And some of that I think is to give the impression that you're looking through a monitor watching it too. Mm-hmm. Because they have that moment with Cypher and Neo where he comes up to him and he's looking at the matrix, but he's just looking at the code because they can't decode right. it. Right. Um, and so, you know, it kind of gives it that. And I think this too, like brings up the point of, I'm, I, I need to go back and watch it again because now knowing all of these things and like how the movie plays out and what, what it's all about, like 
going back and watching and seeing all these subtle hints. And I love when movies do this. Like they mm-hmm. add little things at the beginning that you don't pick up on at all. And then, you know, we have discussions like this, like, oh, did you see that? And you're like, no, like that just makes a movie so much better in my opinion. Oh yeah. Little things or, you know, subtle things in the character names or lines of dialogue that when you go back and you watch it again, you're like, oh yeah, like Morpheus in Greek mythology being the God of dreams. And in mm-hmm. this, in this, he is waking people up from a dream. Like, right. That's just a, a cool little subtle thing, or maybe not even that subtle, but unless you know your Greek mythology, you're not going to place that. Right. So, or his hacker named Neo is like an anagram for one. Yeah. You know, he is the one, Yeah, uh, which, you know, I picked up on. I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, but yeah, I, I always love these little subtle hints that filmmakers drop in that just make this world so much more real. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you have Elon Musk standing up there talking about how we all live in a simulation, <laughs> and you're like, you're crazy. Uh, or I thought you're crazy. And then you go watch The Matrix uh, and, you know, not drawing comparisons, but like, oh, wow. Yeah, I guess this could maybe work, I guess. <laughs> no, I remember um, I remember coming out of the movie theater. That was another thought I had was like, you know, if we are living in a in a uh, in a simulation like that would be one way to do it is put out a movie telling you you're living in a simulation to make you to throw you off the trail. Like I can see that. Um, I forgot to mention this and I have to, because Neo was played by Keanu Reeves, but uh, I don't know if you've ever heard the rumor. Will Smith was offered the role and I've not heard that turned it down. He turned it down so that he could make wild, wild west probably a mistake. Yeah. He's even said, (laughs) uh, you know, afterwards that, he wasn't mature enough to play that role at the time and that he wouldn't have done it well. And he thought Keanu Reeves did a great job with it, but talk about, uh, yeah, turning down the matrix to make wild, wild west. Not a, not a great move (laughs) on his part. No. Um, all right. So you have some questions that I kind of want to get to because you brought those up. So, so let's go, uh, fire away some of your questions. We'll see which one, which of them I can answer and which of them I will say you have to watch the sequels. So, the biggest question I had is, okay, so Neo's in the Matrix and Morpheus contacts him. How does Morpheus know out of the millions of people that are living in the Matrix that, Neo, you are the person that is that is going to save us all, that's going to break us out of this computer simulation? Like, that was the biggest question I came away with this because I, I don't know what he did to prove himself uh, or the Oracle's like, hey, it's that guy that, that you're looking for. They never really go into that. They never go into how they identify anybody because he's um, it's it's something to do with uh, with his abilities with a computer and just, you know, whatever it is. But but essentially Morpheus has been spending his entire life looking for the one. So he's Mm. been just anybody that shows signs of being that he he investigates and he looks at. Okay. Because they never, the other, yeah, they never really go into very much detail about how he found Neo specifically, but apparently there were a lot of them. Oh, okay. The other question I had was, how did they figure out they were in a simulation and break out? Because, I mean, you have Morpheus, who obviously did, but you live in this world, and I mean, even if you and I are living in a simulation, how would we know? And, like, how do you break out of this thing and then potentially go in and unplug other people and go rescue them. 
so they sort of touch on that with the whole idea that when the Matrix was first built, there was a man born inside of it that could manipulate it, and he was mm-hmm. the one that freed the first of them. But it doesn't go much beyond uh, that in terms of explanation of that. Um, they sort of, again, they touch on it a little bit with Agent Smith talking about, well, the first iteration of the Matrix was a utopia, but nobody believed that it was real. So they had to make the second version of the Matrix or whatever subsequent version it is less perfect in order for humans to accept it. Gotcha. And I think basically whatever, that's that's about it. It's probably a rogue code of some kind, but they never they just never really give that explanation. There's a little bit of hand-waving that goes on. Which, again, I'm okay with on a conceptual right. level. Um, my problem was the, the sequels tried to give some explanation to certain things, but they kind of over-explained parts that didn't need explanation and left more mm-hmm. questions. So Gotcha. Yeah, I yeah. think they did a, a fairly good job. Like I said, I had a list of questions, and they answered all of them. <laughs> and the, that was like the one or two that really stuck out. Um, but then like what you just said kind of, spawns another question and this is like diving way too deep i'm okay with like the hand wavy you know Mm. humans being batteries type of thing like i'm okay that this makes sense in the context of the film but if you like conceptually if you were put into a computer program like a dream when you dream sometimes you don't know that it's a dream so if you're in this world that's like super perfect how do you know it's perfect you know you know what i mean like how can you look around and be like huh this is weird because if you have no basis for reality versus being in this in this world because it shows that like babies being put into the matrix and you Mm -hmm. have like no uh nothing to compare it to uh i find i found that kind of interesting too i think what they were trying they're they're really trying to nail home the fact that um that humans define our existence through suffering and Mm -hmm. through pain and so, yes, you know, in a sense, you don't know that you're dreaming, but but the 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 lack of anything bad happening eventually, like it wasn't an immediate like, oh, this is a perfect world and this doesn't this isn't real. It was sort of this idea that, you know, the machines were like, well, we created this matrix. We created this thing. We put all the humans in it. It's this perfect idyllic thing that they can just live out and then we can harvest their energy. But over time, they bucked the system and they they railed against it because it didn't feel right because humans define ourselves by tragedy. That's true. I can see that. Yeah, I think that's where they're going with that. And that was why they had to refactor everything. And then as Phelan in the chat brings up, you know, there was an anomaly. And that's what created sort of the first people to realize that something isn't right. And however they made their way out of the matrix, I have no idea. But because it never really gets into that. But they're the only the, the only are, are the humans in the Matrix aren't the only humans in existence as right, yeah, by Tank and the, Dozer. So, right. So that kind of also, I think, helps because there's people outside of the Matrix trying to figure out how to free the minds of people that are in there as well. Yeah, that that's a good point. Um, there's some. Oh, uh, is there like. A, a leader to the Sentinels to these AI, like in subsequent films, to who's or do, are they like just this entity that exists? Because so, I, w- I want to know more about them too. Yeah, yes and no. Um, they they do explore some other programs that have a lot of influence in the Matrix and a lot of influence with the machines. Um, there's also uh, a program that they come into called the Architect 
that was supposedly mm-hmm. who helped design a lot of it. The Oracle is one that has a lot of influence with the machines because she is a program. Um, oh, really? Yes. Hold up. <laughs> I didn't know. I thought she was just a person who just knew a lot. She's also an, like she's like an agent being a program in this thing who just knows a lot. So, yeah, there are not all of the programs are um, are bad. Not all of them gotcha. are agents. And so the Oracle happens to be one. Now, a bummer for you is um, in the sequels, the Oracle is played by a different actress because the actress that played her in this died shortly after. Oh, no. And the woman that they get to play the Oracle in the other two films is fine. But this this woman, and uh, her name's escaping me right now. Let me look this up. But she was so good in that role. Um, Gloria Foster. She was. And I liked the whole you know, almost like run down New York city apartment yeah. that this Oracle lived in. Cause they're like, we're going to take you to the Oracle. I'm like, Oh man, you're going to go to this like super cool palace or like on top of this big mountain. And there's going to be, you know, someone, and it's just like someone's grandma in the kitchen making cookies. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> like, I'm like, Whoa. But yeah, you just blew my mind. I had no idea <laughs> until you just said that, that she was a computer program. Yep. Yeah. She's a program. Um, and the sequels do get into it a lot more. Um, gotcha. in terms of that kind of stuff. And there's stuff that happens outside of the matrix that involves some of the AIs, whether they are, um, most of the outside the matrix AIs are what you saw with the Sentinels, that kind of mm-hmm. thing where they're, they're like not human looking at all. Um, but it, it, it tries to give some idea, but it is more of, of a collective consciousness than it is individuals. Um, gotcha. the programs are individuals. So, you know, that's where yeah. some of it, again, it kind of collapses under its own weight in some ways in the sequels. Like they tried, they got super ambitious with some ideas that I think some of them work and some of them don't. And I'm really curious to see where the fourth one goes. I recommend watch the two um, sequels before this next movie gets finished. Oh, for sure. Because um, like, I think I, I, it's going to fill in a lot of blanks for you, but also open up a lot more questions. Yeah, so be right I got that. like totally pulled into this world and the world that the wachowski's you know built um i think it's it's a fascinating idea and maybe it's been done before but the whole i love this kind of stuff like like i said inception is one of my favorite movies and i love playing with the mind Mm -hmm. um because we don't know anything about it right you know scientists don't know anything about the brain hardly um so yeah like concepts like this just always suck me in and i'm like 100 percent, and i'm really ashamed i haven't seen it before (laughs) before this last friday well, that's all right. I mean, now you can say that you have, and now you get to experience right. all this for your for yourself, which is really cool. That's right. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. I love kind of delving into the mind and exploring these f- philosophical ideas um, as to as to what they did. Now they did uh, the Wachowskis had the main cast read a couple of books that really delve into stuff. Simulcar and Simulation was one, um, and then what was the other one? Out of Control and Evolutionary Psychology. So. They, they really wanted to play with a lot of that kind of stuff. And they, they brought in a lot of there's, there's Christianity touched upon in this. There's Buddhism touched upon in this. There's Gnostic stuff that's brought up. Um, in fact, one of the major influences was William Gibson's Neuromancer um, mm-hmm. and sort of the whole cyberpunk uh, aesthetic. And he even went on to say like, this isn't exactly like Neuromancer, but it has a lot of, he can see where that was the influence and kind of, the headspace that he was in while he was creating that stuff. And he really likes this apparently. Right. So 
you know, and, and, and Philip K. Dick type novels too. Like there's a lot of that in here. So there's, yeah, there's a lot to on, explore. You touch on religion and uh, something I noticed. So like at the beginning of the film, you see Trinity in room 303. Yep. And then at the end of the movie, she's again in room 303. And then her name just itself being Trinity. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, the allusions to Jesus uh, with Neo, uh, you know, the Holy Trinity and stuff like that. Like I picked up on that and I wrote down, you know, huh, room 303. This is the second time it's been brought up. So it must be important. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> you know? like, oh, yeah. Yeah. And like Same I said, the, the film cool. in the film in some ways is uh, not super subtle with its uh, subtext, but I, I don't care. I don't mind that at all because there are other parts of it that are very deftly done, so it works. Right, and it, sometimes I just want to watch a movie and be told this is what happens, <laughs> and you know this is what it is. And we just watched a movie recently. I forget. Um, it was some indie horror film, and it ends in this like really bizarre way. And I looked it up on one of those stupid YouTube videos, like explain the ending of yeah. X Y Z. So I watch <laughs> it, and the director's always like, "Well, it is what you think it is." I hate that. Like, what did you think? <laughs> what were you intending when you made this? So yeah, I'm I'm really torn when it comes to stuff like that because there's sometimes where I do like an open ended like okay, I can interpret this how I want because mm-hmm. I do think that art can do that. But Inception is also... a great example too. Like mm-hmm. with the top and it spins yeah. and it starts to waver. I'm okay with that. But when it ends abruptly and there's like zero explanation, I, I can't stand that. Well, um, and, and it's one thing to leave uh, something open to interpretation and it's another thing to just be lazy and then say mm-hmm. it's open to interpretation. And I think that's one of the things that the matrix does well is, is it explained to an extent some of the basic stuff in this world, but it leaves a lot of it open to interpretation as well, but not in a lazy way. Um, now when they try to explain more later on, it can actually get more confusing. So be prepared for that. There's a a plus and minus there. There, Yeah. uh, There was another, a funny thing that I saw when, um, towards the end of the movie when the agents are chasing Neo through the streets and they're like shooting and they're like hacking into other people mm-hmm. and there's just like people out there in the streets shopping, right? Yeah. They're out there buying groceries or whatever and what crossed my mind, I was like, what are these people thinking? You know, they're out <laughs> doing their daily business, you know, picking up potatoes and they see like this man just collapse to the floor, turn into somebody else and then sprint down the street. Yeah. Like what is going through the minds? I want to see the people? news, uh, the news at, that night. Right. Right. Like, right. Like, <laughs> Cause that would be entertaining. Um, it would be, you know, another thing and I got to bring this up because this movie came out in 1999 mm-hmm. and it managed to have a gigantic ad campaign without giving anything away. Mm hmm. They did such a good job marketing this to where you had no idea what you were going into when you saw the movie. I didn't. I didn't know what to expect when I went in to see this movie. Um, so I don't recall any. Like again, I, I was seven. So I don't. Right. Do you have examples of? I don't know. Maybe some of the things that they did because I remember I'm a huge horror movie fan. So I really loved what like the Blair Witch Project did with their mm-hmm. marketing campaign, where like putting out news stories and people went to the theaters thinking. Oh my God, I just watched people die Yeah, <laughs> because they thought this was real. So Blair Witch was good with that because they did that. Now what the Matrix did was they kept everything very vague. So all the trailers, all of the um, 
promotional materials for it never gave away really what the plot was. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a whole thing with like the tagline always being what is the matrix, but they right. never really explain it. And even the, the visuals that they would move use from the movie in the trailers were it just never, never gave you a sense of what it was. And I, I appreciate that because I, I don't think movies do that enough anymore. Like it feels like you just get so much of the information of the movie prior to seeing it. I have a friend of mine who literally refuses to watch movie trailers anymore. Like he just won't watch them because he's like, I don't, I don't want the movie spoiled. I don't want the movie given away. Cause like nowadays, especially you get a lot of like boy meets girl or like there's this high octane moment and, mm-hmm. and it kind of gives like, this is how it starts. This is the middle, but you got to watch for the end. Right. <laughs> like, like I, I, I do like that. I'm, I'm the type of person who enjoys spoilers. Like I like reading about something unless it's a movie that I'm like super stoked about and I don't want to know anything, but I do enjoy um, enjoy a spoiler because then I can go in and watch and expect it. And then, like you said, with these little things like the green tinges or these little clues that are in it, if I know how the movie ends, I can watch the whole thing and like pick up on these little things. And I, and I like that in a movie watching experience, but I totally understand, um, especially now uh, with trailers being, I don't know, they're very revealing in a lot of like plot elements. Yeah. It, it feels like the art of the trailer uh, making has, has diminished over the years where it used to be that the idea of the trailer was to get you excited for the movie. So don't give anything away. Just, just give us, you know, a basic, Hey, here's what you can expect to see in this movie. I don't know the, it just, it just feels like modern trailers are too much of like, here's everything in the movie. Now you should go see it. Right. Especially like, I don't know, Avengers comes to mind for whatever reason. So you like see these like big battles, Mm -hmm. um, stuff like that. And then you go in expecting to see this big battle. And then sometimes too, it's like disappointing when they only shoot these sequences for the, for the trailer. Oh, you get this really cool moment and you want to see the context in the full film. And then it's not there. And you're like, well, what the heck? (laughs) Like, I wanted to see this. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it's because it was shot for the trailer or the sequence was cut from the movie. And unfortunately the people making the trailer didn't know that at the time, like all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's rough. Um, but that was just one of the things I remember a ton about this movie when it came out because 99, I know there was a circuit city still in my town and it had one of those little home theater rooms and the trailers for the matrix were always playing in that home theater room when you would go in there for like a year ahead of time. And I, and, and I would see it all the time, still had no clue what I was walking into when I saw the movie. So, yeah, I, I kind of want trailers to go back to that. Uh, especially like the Blair Witch type thing, because Mm. I think that for me anyway, being a horror movie person, that's like the pinnacle almost where you can convince people going in that there's like, I don't know that this, this story actually occurred and you're watching almost a documentary of this found footage. Mm -hmm. Um, Found footage is one of my favorite genres of, of movies, but yeah, Mm. I want to see stuff like that pop up again, because I think that would be really cool. I think people are just afraid or like companies are afraid to do that almost. Yeah, well, and it's such a financially driven thing. Yeah, it's it's all, I mean, movie making is expensive and they want to make their money back. And so the worry is that if you don't market it right, that nobody's going to go see it. But, you know, we have these examples like Blair Witch, like The Matrix, like, you know, movies from the 90s, early 2000s, movies that, that get marketed correctly do really, really well. So, right. you know, so it's always hard to say. 
a couple other little things I wanted to bring up real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The, the scene with the woman in the red dress, when you yes. watch it again, pay attention to the background. And what you're going to notice is a lot of sets of twins. Okay. They actually cast a bunch of sets of identical twins to be in that scene to give it this feel like it's not quite right. Huh. And they did yeah, that my, in a lot during of During that scene, my, my eyes immediately obviously went to the dress. So I wasn't paying attention to yeah. anyone else in gray and blue suit, you know. But yeah, I'll have to look out for stuff like that. Um, that one. And then I just, the, the whole idea of bullet time. Uh, wasn't brand new, but this is the movie that really brought it to the forefront and made it a real thing. Mm-hmm. And the technology had reached a point where it could be done properly. So then, cause there were, uh, concepts of it. I had, uh, as early as like 93, I think, uh, mm-hmm. for something like bullet time. And even, uh, Michelle Gondry had used it in a, a commercial, I think, or something similar to it, uh, a year, a couple years before that, but bullet time itself and that, that whole concept, that whole idea really took off with this movie. And I think, what did I read? By 2003, it had been parodied in like 20 movies already. Oh, jeez. Because, I mean, they, they were parodying it in like Scary Movie and Shrek and, and all right. sorts of stuff. Um, but that whole, like the way that they did it is really cool. If you ever get a chance to watch some making of and behind the scenes stuff for The Matrix, it's kind of neat because they would set up these still cameras Instead of having a single camera moving in a, in a rig, they would have multiple still cameras, each one taking a frame at the same mm-hmm. time. So essentially what they did was they disassociated the camera, the video frame you were watching with the time mm-hmm. and be able to put stuff in so that you could capture all of this data at once and then move through three-dimensional space. And it was really cool looking and certainly yeah, highly influential. Oh, yeah. Like in video games especially I think mm-hmm. like influencing stuff like that. Um, and that was another thing obviously that I knew before the matrix is, you know, the whole like backbending moves and the bullets flying through the air and you could see like the sound waves coming yeah. out of them. Like uh, that was definitely a, a huge part of it. And well, I think uh, the entirety of visually appealing. Yeah. I think the entirety of max Payne was basically based off of bullet time. Like mm-hmm. That that game mm-hmm. was, was because of bullet time. So, right. You know, this this movie was a cultural touchstone in a lot of ways. And Definitely. it's it's cool that you finally got to see it. I'm glad. Uh I'm glad that you did because you got the whole the whole world of the Matrix to explore. There's a there so there's two sequels. There's also um a thing called the Animatrix, which was an anthology of uh f- I think three or four kind of shorts that are set in the same world, but they're animated. Mm-hmm. Ooh. So they're like three or four different animation styles um, of stories in this world. And then you had played, um, you talked about playing games. I think Enter the Matrix was probably the best of the video games that I played based on it. And then, of course, we got another movie coming out. I think that that's the game I did play. And Mm -hmm. um, just like I said, just a couple scenes stuck out in my head, like the beginning with the white rabbit and then like running across the roofs and Trinity diving across the thing or across the gap between buildings. Um, yeah. But yeah, like, I don't know how I went this long without seeing a mo- this movie. And I knew it was influential, but after watching it, I didn't realize how influential this movie was on so many things. Yeah. Like I watch, you know, and a lot of my favorite movies too. Uh, you can see definitely um, 
the threads of inspiration that come out of this thing. Um, and it was really cool. Um, and I'm ashamed to say it that, that I hadn't seen it. <laughs> That's our, and you know, the, the really cool thing for me is that for a movie that came out 20, over 20 years ago, and for you to be watching it and catching all of these, oh, oh wow, that inf- like you seeing all this influence and stuff, and then realizing it still holds up too, like it's yeah. still good. Twenty years later, that's that's and that, great, and that's part of my issue. And and I say issue lightly, but watching a lot of these like older movies is because they don't hold up. And I watch it, and I'm like, this is dumb. <laughs> like I don't understand it, and I can't see it from the context of when the movie was released because I've seen all of these other things, you know, right. but this is definitely, I would say one of the first times I've sat down and I've watched a classic film like this and, and been blown away uh, just by the, the concept of it and how it's really changed culture almost, um, which is hard to say for really any other film, uh, you know, having this much cultural impact and, and, you know, on filmmaking, on, you know, appearance, on all sorts of stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's like, every, really cool. Every so often a film comes along and you can kind of make it a, a point of demarcation. Like there's sci-fi pre and post Star Wars. And right. There's a, there's a very big difference between stuff that came out prior to Star Wars and what came out after it. The Matrix mm-hmm. is another one of those. Jurassic Park is another movie where you can look at, look at a movie with any kind of visual effects pre and post Jurassic Park and how different those can be. And this is definitely one, uh, the matrix being kind of that touchstone moment and Phelan in the chat saying it's classic now. Um, yeah, I know. I feel, <laughs> I feel old when he says that too. Don't worry. I'm sorry. It, it, it is though. Like I think it, it can go down in history is probably one of the best films ever made in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> just, just like I said, just because of the, the impact that it has had and, watching it and you know 20 years later even like how far technology has advanced in 21 years i mean you carry instead of your banana nokia phone i now have you know the internet in my pocket right right and you know go back and watch these like sci-fi movies that are based on technology and still have it hold up and make sense yeah like that that too blew my mind was that you can talk about computers in the sense that still makes sense and isn't just I don't know, blown out and dumb in a well, way like watching it 20 years later. Yeah. And part of it is that they didn't go into like the minutia of computers and they didn't try to get mm-hmm. too techno babbly with it. They, they, that was where they were hand wavy was with the technology and that works. That makes it feel more timeless. Right. And so and I agree. And maybe 20 years from now, when we do find out that we are in a simulation, the matrix won't hold up as well because people are like, that's not how it works. You know? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Also, I have Maybe. to say, the Nokia banana phone. When this movie came out, I wanted that damn phone. Oh, I've seen. I'll have to send it to you. So I watch uh, a lot of tech YouTubers on like cell phones is my thing. Like I'm an expert on cell phones. But there's like this Matrix phone that came out in the 90s, mm-hmm. uh, that or early 2000s. But it wasn't the banana phone. Like you would open it up, and it's like the super futuristic looking thing, and it had like the green, you know, code floating. Oh on yeah, it. I'm like, I remember that. Whoa, that thing's that thing's looking really cool, but. Yeah, I don't know. Very cool. Well, Tanner, I want to say thank you for coming on. This was a ton of fun. This was a great discussion. So It was, thanks. and uh, I appreciate it. And um, like I said, there's a lot of movies I've not seen. So if, if you need somebody in the future, uh, we'll, we'll find available. Yeah, we'll find some more classic films for you to watch. How's that sound? <laughs> I apologize to everyone who... <laughs> 
Uh, <laughs> well, you know what though? By by the Based rules of after that comment, by the rules of classic cars, if it's more than twenty years old, it's a classic. This is over twenty years old, so it's it's a there classic now. It's a classic now. There you go. So no, but thank you very much. Uh, you are welcome back anytime. We'll find another movie and we'll have you back on to talk about. Perfect. It, it was I, a can, great I cannot discussion. wait. It was. Um, it was a lot of. Fun. So, can people find you anywhere on on the internet? Are you uh, you're on social networks? I am. I'm on Twitter. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Straven. That's S-T-R-A-V-Y-N. Um, I'm also dabbling kind of in Twitch streaming. Uh, I kind of took a break for a little bit as I figure stuff out. But it's uh, also Straven with a, an underscore because someone's squatting on the name and it uh, it annoys me. <laughs> Damn it. Awesome. Yeah, I've watched some of your uh, your game streams. Actually, you got me interested in Phasmophobia. And I've been oh my god, that, that game, dude! Oh, that game, so much fun. <laughs> it is so good, it, and it's getting better too. Like they keep improving oh, it. Oh, it's they it's just awesome. had an update come out. I guess uh, a couple days ago. I need to play it again. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you again, and uh, and so like I like I, I always like to say. Oh, uh, coming up next week, by the way, I'm talking the Big Lebowski with Miles from the More You Nerd, and Ooh. I can't wait. Uh, I'm going to make sure that I have the makings for White Russians so I can have one while we're talking about it. Um, because the dude abides. So it's, uh, my favorite alcoholic beverage, by the way. So good white Russian. Oh yeah, love it. Um, I know Phelan. Finally, yes, we're gonna talk. <laughs> we're gonna. It was supposed to do it a few weeks ago, and I had to push. Uh, had to push it back. So I'm looking forward to it. That's one of my favorite. Um, not just Coen Brothers movies, but kind of favorite movies in general. So I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, what somebody thinks about it. Twenty, I guess, three years later now. See if it holds up as well as The Matrix did for you. Um, (laughs) But we always like to say on this show, get out and enjoy your movies. And the world is kind of weird right now, but we're, and maybe we're in a simulation. I don't know, but hey, be excellent to each other. There you go. You get used to it. I I don't even see the code. All I see is blonde, brunette, redhead.